Well, good morning. It's good to see you. It's good to be here again up from Palos this morning while Jeff is away on vacation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning. We thank you for an opportunity to be gathered together as your people in whatever place in life we find ourselves. Whatever our week has been like, whatever our morning has been like, whatever this coming week is like, we are your people. And so we pray now that you would open our ears, eyes, hearts, and minds to this wonderful, true story that you have preserved for us so that we can be encouraged by it in our lives and in the gospel. Father, thank you for preserving this story for us. In Christ's name, amen. So I should ask you as the lights glare into my eyes, how's your week going? How's your day? How's your morning? How you doing? How's your, how's your day been? I mean, I know that those of us who are Cub fans have kind of felt the, ah, the stinging loss of, you know, not going to the World Series for two straight years like we had all hoped to, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how are you actually doing? You know, maybe if you're, if you're fortunate, you're doing pretty good this morning. Maybe today is better than yesterday was. Maybe, maybe you've had a pretty darn good week. Maybe you've had a pretty darn good month. Maybe you've had a pretty darn good year. Maybe as you look back on the last weeks and months and maybe even years, as you look back, you say to yourself, you know what? Things for me just seem to be getting better and better and better. And my encouragement to you is enjoy it. That's awesome. I am here to say, please tell other people about how awesome your life is going right now. Because that's, that's a wonderful thing when that happens. And when that happens for us, I think what occurs, or one of the dangers that perhaps occurs, is that we come to think that that's the way it always is. That's the way it's always supposed to be. And if it's happening to us, maybe what we do is we convince ourselves that if it's like this for us, then it should probably be this way for other people. But as I'm relaying this to you this morning, maybe you're thinking to yourself, um, yeah, so actually I'm experiencing the opposite of what you're saying. This morning was worse than yesterday. Last week, seem pretty good to compared to where I am now. And in fact, what seems to be happening in my life is I get out of one situation that's difficult, that's hard, and I get out of it only to find myself in another situation that's difficult and hard and that I feel trapped in. And I say to myself, what on earth is going on? Why does this keep happening to me? Why do I keep going from one difficult situation to another difficult situation to another difficult situation? And I have for you this morning good news. And the good news is, is that's the way it typically is. That's the story that we have this morning. It reminds us that sometimes we do find ourselves going from one difficult situation and kind of being rescued and redeemed out of it but then immediately find ourselves in another difficult and hard situation, just like the people of Israel. So I would say that most of us, if we've been around the church any amount of time, probably could give the right theological answer here. And that is what we should not expect 
that things are always just going to get cumulatively better and better. We, we would be able to say that and articulate it. The trouble is that when we find ourselves in situations, I think that what happens is our response, both outwardly and inwardly, betrays what we actually think. And that is, we just don't get it. We just don't think that this could possibly be what God's plan is. We have a tendency to think, even though maybe, like I said, we theologically have the right answer, that when we are redeemed by God, when we are put in Christ and redeemed from our sin, that we end up on this trajectory like this where things are just going to keep getting better and better and better all the time. But that's not the, the story that we have in Scripture. We don't move from, immediately from redemption to the promised land, and that's not what happened to the people of Israel. God did not rescue them out of slavery, 430 years of slavery, and then immediately use the Star Trek transporter to beam them into the promised land. That's not what happened. What we have are, you know, four books of the Bible, three books of the Bible, devoted to the story of the people of God encountering difficulty after difficulty after difficulty after their redemption. So it's true to say that we are redeemed once and for all by Christ. But it's also true to say that God is continually working for our redemption. He's continuing to pursue our redemption from all the baggage that we're bringing with us from our slavery. He's constantly at work doing that in surprising ways. That's what the story that we have about this morning is that we really need a deeper sense of appreciation for the ways in which God is continually and surprisingly pursuing our redemption. How, you might ask. I thought I heard somebody say, how? Please tell us how this is happening. Well, I will tell you how. He surprises us by leading us into situations that will require our redemption. That's exactly what has happened here. It says, then the Lord, and again, when you look at these passages, every time you see Lord, it should be all caps. This is God's personal name. And in this passage, if you go through uh, 15 and 16, it occurs 36 times. As though the writer is trying to communicate who the star of the show is supposed to be. Then Yahweh says to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahirath between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal Zephron. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. So there was a quicker and a shorter path to get out of harm's way. Right? I could have just gone straight this way. But what God does is God goes to Moses and says, hey, I'll tell you what, here's what I want you to do. Uh, would you mind actually turning around and heading back this one way so that the Red Sea is here and then you're kind of like in this one spot? That's what I need you to do. And before Moses can say, well, um, you know, that doesn't seem like the fastest route. Why would we be doing that? God tells him. Uh, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. Uh, the wilderness has shut them in and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. That sounds exciting, right? Hey, here's what I want you to do. I know that I just set you free from Egypt, but what I want you to do is I want you to turn back around because I'm planning on sending Pharaoh's army after you. I'm sorry? I, I thought the plan was for us to get away from 
Egypt, and it sounds like what you're doing is orchestrating a situation in which we are going to encounter Pharaoh's army. And as I think about it and what's just happened to Pharaoh and all of his army soldiers, they've all just lost children, I'm imagining that that encounter is not going to go particularly well for us. So they're going to be pretty upset. Because the most unimaginable thing has just happened to them. But yet, that's exactly what God tells him to do. This is the route I want you to take, and this is what I'm going to set up. Why does this happen? Because I would propose to you that no one says, you know what the best thing for me right now would be? The best thing for my life would be is if God led me to a place where I am going to experience hardship and feel trapped and overwhelmed with no way out. I really wish God would do that to me. I think it would be the best thing for my life. No one says that. I don't say that. I never in my morning prayers say, God, please lead me to a situation of hardship where I feel trapped and isolated and like my doom is certain. Do you? No, we don't. But yet God directs his people sometimes into situations where we are trapped, where our doom does seem very certain. When we look out at the data that we have, we're like, how in the world am I going to get myself out of this situation? I'm trapped and alone in my doom seems certain. Why? Why does this happen? We're actually told, but you have to work at it. So if you, were to, if you brought your Bibles this morning, and I always want to encourage you to bring your Bibles because it's good to bring your Bible. If you brought your Bibles this morning, if you were to go back to chapter 13, here's what you'd see. You'd see this is what's actually occurred. It says uh, in chapter 13, verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So what's happened here is that God has actually directed the people away from the Philistines. So you have to keep in mind, he's just obliterated the Egyptians. So he has it in his power to absolutely obliterate his opponent. And yet he says, I'm not going to send the people to the Philistines, lest they see them and think, oh no, another war, and turn around and go back. Because of course God could obliterate the Philistines, right? It's, he's, he's proven that these kind of battles are not a big thing for him. But what do we learn here? What we learn is that God is teaching them that he's provident. He has providence over our situations, even though the people maybe don't see it. They don't know that they have been avoiding the Philistines, that God has directed them away to the Philistines, away from one aspect of encountering trouble and hardship to another place where they're going to encounter hardship. That what God teaches us in this is that he has providence over our hardship. Sometimes God takes you away from one place of hardship to take you to another place of hardship. Does that even make sense? Does that even seem right? That God would say, no, not this hardship, not this week. This week I have a different hardship planned for you. 
We'll get to the Philistines later. They're going to encounter them later, but not this week. I'm going to save that for another time. Is it possible that we could actually come as, as Christians to rightly look at our lives and say, I am experiencing hardship. And if you, as you notice, the, the Israelites haven't done anything to deserve what they're getting as far as they've not like sinned against the Lord and so God's put them in this spot. He just puts them in this spot to teach them that at all times, in every single time, in every single situation, no matter what situation you find yourself in, God is exercising his providence over that. That may not seem like a big comfort, but it is a comfort. It's supposed to be a comfort that God providentially leads us sometimes into hardships. And the hardship that we're experiencing at whatever moment is the hardship that God has chosen for us to experience rather than experience a different one. And that's surprising to us. That God is pursuing our redemption by actually leading us at times into hardship that only he can rescue us from. But that's not the only surprising thing. See, the surprising nature of, of God's working for our redemption is that it continues in this way. See, it's, they didn't get themselves into this situation by sinning. But man, oh man, when they got into it, they responded like you or I might respond. Here's what they say. They say, uh, they said to Moses, it says they cried out to the Lord. Now this phrase, cried out to the Lord, has been used earlier, right? It's when the, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord to rescue them in chapter 2. They're like, they cried out to the Lord, Lord, rescue us. This is not the same kind of, it's the same kind of cried out, but it doesn't have the same intent. Now they're rescued and they're crying out to the Lord again. And they say, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? <laughs> is that why we're here? I get it. <laughs> There's no graves over there, so you brought us out here to die. That makes complete sense. Thanks, dude. Appreciate it. Love what you're doing for us. Is this not what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians and die in the wilderness. Why would they say that? Because they have no concept of what freedom is like. They have spent their entire lives as slaves. And sometimes when you're living your life as a slave, you can actually convince yourself that things seem pretty darn good. That you're living their best life right now. But that's not what God had for them. God has something else for them. But their response after, after freedom, after watching God's epic rescue of them, is to immediately get, find themselves in a position of hardship and immediately move to a place of bitterness and anger and a desire to serve someone else. A desire to go back to the way it was. A desire to go back to slavery. It's exactly what's happened here. Now here's the other surprising aspect of our redemption. That God pursues our redemption even when we're sinning and don't want it. Think about that. At no point in this story have the people of God shown in any way that they desire to continue in God's path of redemption. Nothing. 
All they are is bitter and angry, upset, and they want to go back to slavery. And how does God respond? Even though that's where their hearts are, even though their hearts are set against God, even though their hearts are addicted to rebellion against God, God is going to pursue their redemption. They don't repent before God opens up the Red Sea. God opens up the Red Sea and sends them through. The surprising thing about our redemption is that God pursues it oftentimes against our own hearts, against our own minds, against our own desires. And in in Palos, one of the illustrations I've made for them is that one of the things we want to do here is maybe try to identify with the people of Israel. That makes sense for us. But what I've encouraged the people in Palos to do is actually at times to, to try to connect with Pharaoh. Right? Because a lot of times we're just like Pharaoh. Right? Despite God making it very clear what we should do, we completely disregard it. We try to make deals with God just like Pharaoh did. And say, okay, well, if you'll stop my suffering, then I'll totally do what you say. And so the suffering stops and then Pharaoh's like, yeah, I was kidding about that. I'm totally going back the way I was doing things before. We never do that. That's not how we operate. We don't drive to the office in the morning and having a bad day and we pray to God, God, please fix the way it is. And I promise you, I promise you, I'll do exactly, I'll live the way you want. And then as soon as things get fixed, you're right back to your old way. We never do things like that. And like Pharaoh, after seeing the devastation that can be brought upon us by rebelling against God, like the message is as clear as it can be. Rebellion against God, the price for that is death. How long does it take for that lesson to wear off for Pharaoh? Not long. Eh. Change my mind. Going after him. We are addicted to rebellion. Sometimes acutely so. And even in our rebellion, even in our crying out against God, God continues to pursue our redemption because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were yet sinners, while we had not yet done anything at all to deserve his redemption, he dies for us. But wait, there's more. He continues to surprise us in pursuing our redemption by providing unusual pathways towards it. So I want to try to set this picture for you so that you can understand it in a way that perhaps you, don't under, you haven't seen it before. So when we see this movie, the Ten Commandments, there you are, the people are there, and Moses holds up the staff and the Red Sea parts and the people run down. And it's amazing and it's wonderful. But I'm going to propose to you that things are a little different. Okay? I want you to try to put yourselves into the people's shoes. They get up. They're like, whoo, man, we're getting out of Israel. I don't know why we're going, or getting out of Egypt. I'm not sure why we're going this way. It seems kind of odd to me, but you know, whatever. They get up and they look up on the hill and they're like, oh, uh, that's Pharaoh's army. Pharaoh's army is here. They're probably not happy. What are we doing here? We're totally trapped and we're cut off and we're going to die. And Moses tells him, don't worry, I got a plan. Here's what we're going to do. God's going to open up the Red Sea. Water is going to be higher than your heads on both sides of you. Loud wind is going to be holding them back. And in front of you, coming at you very angrily, are going to be Pharaoh's armies. 
And what I need you to do is just turn around, just go ahead and just walk right through there. Everything's going to be fine, don't worry about it. Totally fine. I just need you to run into the burning building. And if you run through the burning building, then safety's on the other side. No problem, you guys got nothing to worry about. Just try to get there for a moment. Try to put yourself in that's what you're looking at. Uh, yeah. Um, what? Can't you just like wipe them out? Just, just kill them off. You want me to do what? <laughs> um, so if some part of this plan goes awry while I'm in the middle of it, we're going to be dead. Like you do understand that the Red Sea is huge. Moses is like, I don't know, that's just the instructions I was given. If you want safety, you're going to have to do this thing that's going to absolutely look terrifying to you. So this probably didn't look like, oh, good, the Red Sea opened. Hey, let's go. This is awesome. This was probably terrifying to the people. This is the mighty hand of God opening up in front of them the Red Sea and Moses saying, you guys go on down through there. Everything's going to be awesome. The paths sometimes that we look for when we find ourselves in trouble, when we're trying to figure out a way forward in our lives, very frequently what we do is, because we're human, right? And because we're human, we go through all the human things that we can do to move forward. What are the human things that I could do that would move me out of this situation and into the other situation where I want to be? That's completely natural and completely human. And sometimes it's exactly what we're supposed to do. But what God shows us is sometimes his pathway towards our redemption is the thing that you could not possibly imagine or make up. You wouldn't possibly think to yourself that the way that we're going to move forward is by some unbelievably ridiculous, terrifying thing that just all of a sudden is there and that's the path you have to choose. And yet this is exactly the way that God operates over and over and over again. God's plan is way better than our plan. As, I, as I've said maybe before, when I decided, well, I didn't decide, when my wife decided that she was ready for us to move to seminary, it was 30 days before classes started, and we had not sold our house, we had made zero preparations to go to seminary. Zero. And we prayed one evening. Sometimes you should ask me to tell you the whole story because the whole story is crazy. But we prayed about it. My wife said, you know, I wasn't ready to be a pastor's wife, but I'm ready now. We'll have to see what the Lord does. Here's the plan. I'm like, yeah, that's not a plan. We've not sold our house. We've not registered for classes. We don't have anywhere to live. St. Louis is four hours away. That's never going to happen. My wife's like, yeah, we'll wait and see. The next morning, over coffee, we sold our house to our neighbors for cash. And it's just like God was saying, I'm sorry, what was your plan on getting to seminary? Because my plan was I was selling your house to your neighbors for cash. Did you have one? I'm like, no, we'll go with yours. <laughs> it makes complete sense. It doesn't happen all the time, but sometimes it does. Sometimes God's pathway for our redemption makes no sense and we don't see it coming. We are so inclined to try to figure out our own way forward, our own pathway towards redemption from a situation. And when we pursue that, we are working out pathways that are completely opposed to the gospel. Here's what I mean. All of us in this room 
deserve the wrath of God for our rebellion against him. All of us. There is no one worthy, no, not one. Every single person deserves wrath. How are we going to escape the wrath of God? Wait for it. Put your faith in Jesus. Wait. It's got to be more than that. Nope. That's it. That's the only way. Just one way. Makes no sense. I get that. But if you don't put your faith in him, you set yourself up for God's judgment directly. You don't want that. God's pathway for redemption is often surprising. But wait, there's more. After experiencing this, right, after being led into a place of hardship, after having God rescue them, even though they were opposed to his rescue, even though they didn't ask for it, they didn't deserve it, God still rescued them, and he rescued them in a surprising way that they could not possibly have dreamed up. And as they turn on the other side of the Red Sea, and God closes up the Red Sea, and they see the bodies of the Egyptian army floating. That's what it says. Here's how they respond. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water at Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, What shall we drink? Seriously? Seriously? I'm sorry. God just sent ten plagues on Egypt, which you saw, which he rescued you from. Then you were trapped by the Red Sea and going to die. And God miraculously opened it up and you walked on dry ground through it and he swallowed up the people of Egypt. And now you say, hey, there's nothing to drink here. Really? The surprising thing about God's pursuit of our redemption, as I said earlier in point two, is that God continues to pursue our redemption against us. Right back to sin these people were. Right back to it. Right back to doubting God. Right back to questioning God. Right back not to trusting God. And yet God says, yeah, throw the log in, we'll make the water fresh. This is the way God operates. God continues to pursue our redemption, oftentimes despite us, most of the time despite us, in surprising ways. See, we are committed, we are committed to rebellion. We're committed to it. Fortunately for us, God is committed to grace and mercy. That's what he's been teaching them. You, you, you commit yourselves to rebellion against me, I commit myself to grace and mercy towards you over and over again. And then it says this. He takes them to this place. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. 
After all of this, God takes him to a place that is as close to a foretaste of the promised land as you can imagine it. After everything they've done, after all of their doubt, God takes them to a place before the rest of their journey, the rest of their 40 years begin, God gives them a foretaste of the promised land. Isn't that wonderful and isn't that good news? So let me ask this question. Why? Why? Why does God do this? Well, he tells you in the passage that we read this morning, it says three times. God pursues our redemption in surprising and ongoing ways so that he will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. That's why he does it. God pursues our redemption this way in surprising ways so that he can have glory. And we've been taught by our parents, you're not supposed to like somebody like that. What's your primary motivation for life? To get glory. We're told, yeah, we're not supposed to like people like that. You're not supposed to want to be like that. Well, you get to be like that if you're Yahweh. If you're Yahweh, you get to make everything about you. Everything about you getting glory. And that's what this entire passage has been about. Normally I don't use sports analogies, but there's two good ones that work here. Here's what God's doing. In 1974, there was the classic rumble in the jungle where Muhammad Ali faced off against George, uh, George Foreman and he pursued this tactic called rope-a-dope where Muhammad Ali got himself against the ropes and he's letting George Foreman go after him like this and George Foreman and all the scorers think, man, Muhammad Ali, he's going to lose. I, don't even, I can't believe this. He's so much better. And then all of a sudden, as Foreman starts to wear out, Muhammad Ali throws him in here and just starts pummeling on him. That's what God's doing. After 10 plagues against Egypt, God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do the rope-a-dope strategy. I'm going to make Pharaoh think that he's totally got my people trapped. And then in front of my people so they can know how awesome I am, I am going to wipe them out. And whoever didn't actually go into the Red Sea, I'm actually going to just shove them right on in and drown them too. This is the equivalent of spiking the ball in the end zone and doing a dance. Right? That's what God's doing. He scores a touchdown, he slams the ball down, and then he goes into like a 25-minute thing where he's doing all this stuff. He's like, just so you know, Egypt and Israel, I rule. I rule everything. I win always. This is who I am. This whole thing has been about teaching you that I have providence over your hardship. I am the most powerful God that exists. You forgot about that because you've been in slavery for 400 years, but I am the God who can rescue you at all times from any situation in surprising ways. And I am the God of steadfast love and mercy who will pursue your redemption even when you don't want it, even when you don't deserve it, because I'm the God of steadfast love and mercy who has covenantally bound myself to you to rescue you no matter what happens. And I will do it. I guarantee you that when I make you a promise that I will take you to the promised land, I will get you there. Absolutely. And maybe you're saying to yourself, well, what about, the, what about my, my rescue? When's my rescue coming? I've been enduring hardship for years. When am I going to be saved out of this hardship? You know what my answer to you is? Maybe never in this world. But I absolutely guarantee you that through Christ, God guarantees you that he will bring you to the promised land. He will bring you safely home. That is guaranteed. 
That is what God is teaching these people. I will get you home. I guarantee it. I'm able to do it even when you oppose me because I'm the God of steadfast love and mercy who continues to pursue redemption in surprising ways. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that we are able to be your people. Father, we thank you for the fact that you do continue to pursue our redemption in surprising ways. You lead us into places where only you can rescue us. And Father, we confess to you that so often when we find ourselves in those situations, our response is not one of expectation, one of trust, one of looking forward to seeing you work. Our response is one of bitterness and anger and wanting to go back to the way it was, to embracing idols. Father, we, we repent. We confess that our response to what you are doing in our lives, to the manner in which you pursue our redemption, is oftentimes sinful. And for that, we are sorry. We are sorry for believing that the only way forward so often is through our own efforts and that you could not possibly be expected to provide some very surprising means for rescuing us. We look at the pathways that you often choose and we doubt them. We say, that doesn't seem like it's going to work well for me. Father, we are so fickle. We are so addicted to our own rebellion against you. Even though time and time and time again, we see you constantly working for our redemption. We see what you have done in Christ. We see what you have done in our own lives. And so, Father, we confess our sin. And, Father, we ask that you would heal us. In Christ's name, amen. Hear the good news, the good news of the gospel. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel. For you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have swept away your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. In Jesus Christ, your sins have been forgiven and redeemed. Thanks be to God.